namutassa pakavatu arhatu samasambuddhassa namutassa pakavatu arhatu samasambuddhassa namutassa pakavatu arhatu samasambuddhassa buddhang dhammang sankham sam So it's most difficult to give a talk to friends that I know quite well and we've been talking with each other because, you know, what's there to say, you know? And uh, it's much easier actually to give a talk to 60 people, 70 people, because then you can just sort of go for a theme and whereas with just your old mates, what don't you know? You know, we all, we all, we all have the information, we all probably studied enough. Um, sometimes these kind of situations, the monk is an admonishment that you, you know, you're not practicing hard enough and that you should just shape up. And But that wouldn't work here because everyone's actually quite diligent. Um, sometimes monks use the pulpit as their own confession. <laughs> so they confess how pathetic they are and how difficult life is and you say, why are you a monk? So that doesn't work. Um, but somehow this, this is our tradition that we uh, we come together every quarter, lunar quarter and uh, chant together, contemplate Dhamma in, in some kind of way. So the quality of the talk is really it's not it's not like a performance and this is the problem with giving talks you kind of have this sort of sense of mm, was that a good talk or a bad talk and this monk gives great talks and that monk doesn't give good talks and it becomes I think a bit too much like Dharma entertainment and certainly one enjoys a good talk and one enjoys a humor and and uh, analogy and simile and good language and good diction and good erudition and all and certainly lovely as opposed to something which is hard to understand but um, the point of all our comings together or being alone is, is the practice of non-grasping um, so the the goal the way I see it, at least the goal of the of our life is, is non-attachment, non-grasping, the realization of Nibbana. Um, and then the method, the method is our, our lifestyle, uh, our Vinaya, our trying to live in harmony, our trying to um, practice sense restraint, our, our attempt to uh, practice right speech, and our... Uh, opening of the heart, a sense of forgiveness and compassion and goodwill. And that's the method. That's the method. That's, that's the, those are the tools that we use. Those are the uh, ways we realize the unconditioned, the ways we realize what non-grasping is about. And that's something I've found myself emphasizing the last ten years, is the difference between method and goal. If you, if you make the method the goal, then you become very idealized in your practice. I should be compassionate, I should, I should practice sensory strength, I, uh, 
I should be this and I should be that. It becomes a kind of, in some way, egotistical, not, not in a horrible way, but in a way it's still about me trying to become something, a, a different kind of a person. Whereas non-grasping is not becoming a different kind of a person. It's just seeing that some uh, personality structures and habits are are uh, sticky, insidious, um, um, uh, impel us to, to, to believe in all manner of views and opinions and emotional upheavals, and we get caught by the five kandhas. Uh, whereas if I, if like in myself, I see, if, if we see that like we were talking today about computers and the difficulty of monastery having computers and the tendency to, to get kind of distracted by them with not bad things, just work and research and so on. There's a good use of them and there's the kind of um, distracted word use and this is the this is the teaching around uh, Indriya Sanwara, which is the sense restraint. It's one of the really, really basic um, foundations of the building blocks of monastic life, sense restraint. And so sense restraint as a, a kind of ego imperative is always like very uptight and repressed and, and judgmental of others. Or sense restraint as a tool, as a as a wisdom tool, as a method, is actually it doesn't have that sense of uptightness, doesn't have the sense of force. It, it comes more from wisdom. I just realize that whatever sense objects I get caught up into and I get distracted by, that's the attachment to the khandhas, that's the propagation of lobha. Uh, the exciting of the mind, the disturbing of the mind, and I see, no, no, I don't want to go that way. I want to go more to non-grasping, to the silence of the mind, to the stillness of being. And so there's a natural insight into sense restraint. And that would be good. Yeah, if, I, if I didn't do that, if I didn't go that, if I didn't read that, I didn't speak like that, I just that would be a good thing to do. And then I train in sense restraint. That's a training, and that's a method. Whereas the other, like, you must not do this, and you must not do that. And we were talking about that, the Sangha this morning. How to set up um, protocols and boundaries in a monastery around things which are quite distracting. But the problem is that some, some people, um, their wisdom faculty isn't so strong, so then the rules have to be somehow made more vocal and that or more tight or more strong. And personally I find that quite distasteful myself. <laughs> I kinda of think, well there's mature people. You know, they can they should be able to get it together. But sometimes that's not true. So so monastic uh, rule keeping should be coming from wisdom should be coming from maturity, but sometimes the, um, and the enunciate, the description of rules becomes more, more uh, prescriptive, more limiting. Anyway, that's one of the things that we were pondering here this morning. It doesn't really, doesn't affect 
it's not really about us who are here now, it's more about other beings. But that, that, that theme of, of method as opposed to goal, I think, is quite important because of our tendency to idealize what we should be. And that will never work, because that will always be coming from ego. Whereas uh, uh, understanding one's attachments to the five candles, how one's fears are overwhelming, or, or how one's worries are so so seductive that your mind is always worrying, or how the need for distraction is, is quite strong, whatever it is, uh, one sees that, and one, I want to be free from that. And then the methods are quite quite unique to each person, and we were given certain recommendations. So Indriya Samwara is sense restraint, not because the sense experiences are bad, it's just as long as we are fascinated by sense experience, we won't realize that which is unconditioned in all sense experiences conditioned. So there's a kind of insight, yeah, it's not about badness or evilness or not goodness, it's about you're looking in the wrong place. That's all. You're looking for the unconditioned and the condition. You're, 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 you're focused on the wrong thing. And there's a kind of turnaround, and that's what renunciation is about. Um, contentment with little is one of the um, basics of, of monastic life. Just being content with what one is offered, being content with one's living place and one's food and... and the community one's in, the environment one's in, and, and this is a this is a method rather than you should be content with what you have. It's not that. It's you just realize, well, if I'm constantly seeking more of this or better of that or bigger of this and you know, different lodging or different food or whatever, unless it's for medical reasons, then my then if my mind is not content with little then that focus is again on the khandas, on some aspect of the khandas that I want, and then my mind is looking in the wrong place. That's all. It's not wrong to want better. It's not immoral to want bigger. It's just, it's just not, a, it's not the strategy that the Buddha recommended. So you begin to kind of see, oh, contentment with little, that would be a, that would be a good method. That would be a good training. So the insight comes and then you train. And so I certainly had that in Thailand with, with the food that we had in those early years. Food is very scarce in my mind. I was really craving all, all manner of food. And, and, and actually my body probably needed more protein or whatever. And then the mind would complain, the food's not good. I said, well, wait a minute, you can leave. You can leave. And Ajahn Chah would just, just be content, Ajahn Samir would just be content with what you got. And then that, that wasn't an automatic thing. It wasn't like I was content with what I got, but I could begin to incline my mind towards content with little. Even though it wasn't there, I could see, I could see that, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I, could, I could try to do that. And certainly I could, if I lost the plot and I got quite, self-critical and say, oh, you should be content, you should be more content, but that's not, that's not a method, that's a goal. And then the ego comes up and one feels guilty or inadequate or thinks I can't do it. But as a method, one can 
uh, incline the mind towards that. So that's the use of thought. I can use thought to to say, well, yeah, just be content with this. And then the mind complains, yeah, 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 but just be content with this. And you slowly evolve uh, a character which is imbued with this kind of good quality of contentment a little. And from wisdom, right? From wisdom rather than compulsion or, or force or fear or guilt or all the different ways that we can take this stuff up. And then you think about like monastic life, the kind of the the um, how we have times of solitude and how we have times of community, and that's a challenge, isn't it? To to both be able to do both, to be um, to see being on your own is a skillful means, and being with people is a skillful means, because in both arenas we we learn something different about ourselves. So, uh, solitude for, I think, for the majority of monastic solitude is easier than people. Uh, I think that's true for, we were were speaking about that, I think, that people who come to monastic life have a a capacity to be alone and uh, can be quite diligent and and content when they're alone. not everyone, but but I think that might be the population that we attract. So that's okay um, to to use that skill of being alone to to use aloneness in a really good way. So what's aloneness as a skillful means that I can I can do sitting and walking meditation on my own. I can study on my own. I can have self motivation to study the Patimoka or 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 the, the different rules uh, to read suttas, or to uh, develop samadhi, uh, to keep my, my living space really, uh, really neat and clean and, and uh, land around it. If the kuti is, is broken, that I'm, I'm, I don't just leave it for years, I say, oh, this is broken, I can fix it. So that's all self-motivation in solitude, isn't it? Rather than just the kuti becoming the place you crash out, or always needing someone else to motivate you to do sitting and walking meditation, or to study, uh, or to take care of the kuti in uh, in, a, in a good and proper way. So those are the. So if you see that one's life in solitude can be a skillful means, then you look at okay in solitude, what do I do well, and what do I not do well. What do I do that's that's quite fruitful, gives good results, gives the kind of results when I come into the group of sun I feel, yeah, I've I've earned my rice, as it were. And what kind of things when I come into the back into the sun you make me feel, hmm, nah, I wasn't really uh, I could I could uh, use that solitude in a bit more fruitful, in a better way. And then group, uh, communal activity. Is, a, is another venue, and how has it become a skillful means? Well, if I'm very gregarious and I find, you know, groups really exciting and interesting, then then that would require some restraints. So I don't get all excited by group activity. If I'm more of a hermit, more aversive character or fearful character, then the group brings that up, brings up judgment, brings up aversion, brings up. 
social anxieties, brings up um, arrogance or conceit or dominance or whatever. And then I see, well, I shouldn't be that way. I should be compassionate. But that's not method. That's goal again. I should be someone in a group setting. Well, in a group setting, the khandas arise in a particular way according to my conditioning, don't they? So it's not so much about what I should be in a group, it's what, what, what arises in a group setting and what's the attachment to that. What's the grasping? And what kind of skillful means could I develop in a group setting that would help me go beyond the grasping that takes place? The fearfulness, the aversion, the boredom, whatever way grasping takes place in the kindness in a group. So this this would be from wisdom, wouldn't it? You kind of consent. Oh, yeah, okay. I I you know when I speak into a large group, I feel fearful. Okay, and there's attachment there. How can I use that situation to speak into a group and watch the fear, observe the fear, and go beyond the grasping of fear? Or I'm in a group and I'm very, very, um, very verbose and I can't stop talking. <laughs> and uh, just go on and on and on. And people tell me, you know, you, you went beyond your time. And, okay, how can I restrain my speech? Or I'm afraid to say anything. Whatever it is, if we're mindful, if we're aware, we see, oh, what arises here now is some ego. I'm not calm, I'm upset by this, and okay, that's what I can watch, that's what I have to learn about my grasping. So then it becomes a method. So the, the um, so we say the group is, group situation is practice, sol- solitude is practice, but to kind of just think that the place I like, the situation I like, is the place of best practice would be, I think like Lopo Cha would say, practicing disaster. So he often recommended go into those spaces which are uncomfortable, not not in a permanent way, but to just look at why is it was it discomfort why why is that difficult? So we're recommended in group to to abide in in a way where we regard each other with goodwill, and that's a beautiful thing, isn't it? And goodwill is not liking. Goodwill is goodwill. So I don't. I don't wish you ill. I don't wish you suffering. I don't wish you harm. I don't wish you um, disaster and accident. I, I wish you. I wish you well. I wish you freedom from suffering. I wish you good health. I wish you happiness and insight. And, and I wish you freedom, uh, realization nibbana. And that doesn't mean that I like everyone. I can dislike someone, but still uh, have goodwill towards. I can feel. And you know, that disease with someone's uh, character because somehow they they confuse me or they rub me up the wrong way or they remind me of someone in my childhood or whatever. But I can see my mind going towards ill will, and I can say, no, no, may you be free from suffering. I can train goodwill. But if I if I take a position that I should have loving kindness for everyone all the time. That's a pattern. I think it's a very kind of shallow way of looking at it. It's kind of a 
simplistic way, I should be someone who loves everyone all the time and has metta. Either that becomes very sentimental and unreal, or becomes impossible and one just feels, I can't do it, I can't like, I can't love everyone. But if you see this is a method, and the mind starts to move towards ill will, you see, oh, ill will is an attachment. Ill will is me always being preoccupied with this other person. In a way, I'm always, I'm always averse to them or judgmental of them. I say, oh yeah, but if I just said, yeah, yeah, okay, you are the way you are. May you be free from suffering. Maybe that's a way of letting go. Maybe that's a way of non grasping. And so the practices of metta or goodwill are, are highly recommended. And the thing about the the Brahma Viharas is they really, they really bring us to a place of, of non-desire. As the Brahma Viharas of Upeka and compassion and and uh, goodwill and uh, joyfulness, they they are they are directly opposed to to desire to tanha. When I have goodwill towards someone, I don't want anything from them or the situation. When I feel compassion for someone's they say someone's really neurotic and their you know, their, their, their mind is all over the shop and just <laughs> creating a nightmare for the abbot. <laughs> and and uh, what does the abbot do? He says, well, the, the kind of impulse of ill will is, I'm going to throw you out. <laughs> but then, then, no, no, that's not right. How can, how can this situation be one where I can develop goodwill? Can I develop goodwill around a situation that's very confusing and, 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 and difficult for everyone? And so it's a kind of opportunity to develop uh, character traits which are very, very freeing and very liberating from craving. Whereas the craving mind is like, I just want comfort. I want everyone to behave themselves like me and give me good coffee with cream. And then, you know, then, then my monastic life will be fulfilled. <laughs> Which is, of course, that's the desire mind. And this really comes up in my mind. But I realize if, if it was like that, it wouldn't be real life, first of all. And, and it, if, it could, if I could manage to do that, then I'd just have a bunch of sycophants running around. And I'd be probably pretty blind to my own, my own <laughs> limitations or whatever. But to, to me, that, that insight between uh, method and goal, I think is quite helpful. And someone, I was talking to someone from Toronto earlier today, who was kind of a typical question I get from people in the work world, is what about ambition? What about worldly goals and so on? And because in his work situation, everyone is goal-oriented. You know, we've got to make more money for the company and ourselves. And the heck with the clients. We just got to make more profit. And he says, how can I live in that environment? And I said, you probably can't, but you got to try. But what I, what I, I said that you can, I mean, as a, as, a, as a layperson, you need a goal. You need to put food on the table. You need to pay for the mortgage take care of the kids or, or whatever and maybe uh, go see a movie every now and then or something like that. Uh, and so there's there's a goal financially which has to be met uh, and then maybe a bit more for doing something which is culturally appealing and maybe 
a little more for some dharma to help people. So, you have a kind of a goal, a financial goal, and hopefully it can be within a livelihood which is wholesome, and that's part of the goal. But then, the the um, the real secret of, of right work or right livelihood is that it's used as a, a way of developing character, of developing um, the, the, the kind of skills of one's craft, but also the, the, the character of being patient, of, of being wise, reflecting, using conflicts to become more equanimous and so on and so forth. So the, the goal kind of sets the game, like the goal kind of creates the basketball court or the hockey rink, and then you play the game within that goal, and you have to reach the goal, because you have to feed yourself. But then, it's not just about the goal, come hell or high water, it's more about being mindful and present and developing all the, the good qualities of a good person within that, which is hard to do in a competitive environment. So people come here for really... <clears throat> So our goal then is actually every moment. Our goal is every moment to awaken to the way things are and let go of grasping. So it's not a goal that is achieved in time, and yet in time you do see a certain progress, which is the capacity to let go is more profound, more deep, and more... uh, uh, deep, I guess, in terms of both understanding and capacity, and yet it's always in the present moment. It's not. It, we say the Dhamma is not a matter of time, and yet one can see that in time, those aspects of character which are, are causes of, of attachment, causes of suffering, they begin to have less power. They fall away, and the causes for clarity, non-grasping, wisdom, insight, uh, all the rest of it, they, they're, they're more, more powerful. And so you can see, in some sense you see a progression in time, and yet the practice is always timeless. Because it's not like I'm trying to do that in time, I'm trying to become someone in the future, I just have to do it now. And the rest takes care of itself. Otherwise, if it's a time-bound kind of thing, then there's always a sense of me doing something to become something, which is still bhagavatanha, still, still craving. Whereas this really awakening to grasping, understanding the, the attachment, and then get better and better at non-grasping, more and more skillful at letting go, and letting be, um, is always in the moment, in the moment, in the moment. So all of us who have been practicing a while, we can see that and we do that better now than we did ten years ago. We do it much better, and yet we always think doing it in the present moment. So it's an interesting one. It's, it's a sense of like non-becoming, and yet there is a result which is almost like a byproduct. It's a very good byproduct because it's freedom. Each of us faces different challenges. We have different levels of attachment that come up in different areas with different people in different situations and that's that's our kind of vipaka kama that's the sort of uh, the hand that we've been dealt and that's what we have to play so you can't really compare yourself to someone else so 
well, I'm not as advanced as that one, or that one's much more uh, foolish than me, because we all, we all have a different, um, a different set of cards that we've dealt, and we just have to play that. And some people get dealt a very difficult hand, some people get dealt a lot of aces, and whatever, and uh, that's the way it is, so it goes. So we have, we have, we have the good fortune that whatever um, hand we've been dealt, the Dhamma can can address it. You know, this teaching of the Four Noble Truths that we chanted, it, it, it deals with it. It really does. And so we have the good fortune of um, being able to use the hand that we've been dealt to kind of play, to play, uh, to play a game which leads to the end of suffering. All right, I'll leave that for tonight. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu.